The Audio Partners Publishing Corporation is pleased to present The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, read by Jeff David, with music by Kevin Roth. Cash 
or on installments. He or she looks at people in a similar way. For the man, an attractive girl, and for the woman, an attractive man are the prizes that they are after. Attractive usually means a nice package of qualities which are popular and sought after on the personality market. What specifically makes a person attractive depends on the fashion of the time, physically as well as mentally. The sense of falling in love develops usually only with regard to such human commodities as are within reach of one's own possibilities for exchange. I am out for a bargain. The object should be desirable from the standpoint of its social value and at the same time should want me, considering my overt and hidden assets and potentialities. Two persons thus fall in love when they feel they have found the best object available on the market, considering the limitations of their own exchange values. Often, as in buying real estate, the hidden potentialities which can be developed play a considerable role in this bargain. In a culture in which the marketing orientation prevails, and in which material success is the outstanding value, there is little reason to be surprised that human love relations follow the same pattern of exchange which governs the commodity and the labor market. The third error leading to the assumption that there is nothing to be learned about love lies in the confusion between the initial experience of falling in love and the permanent state of being in love, or as we might better say, of standing in love. If two people who have been strangers suddenly let the wall between them break down and feel close, feel one, this moment of oneness is one of the most exhilarating, most exciting experiences in life. It is all the more wonderful and miraculous for persons who have been shut off, isolated, without love. This miracle of sudden intimacy is often facilitated if it is combined with or initiated by sexual attraction and consummation. However, this type of love is by its very nature not lasting. The two persons become well acquainted. Their intimacy loses more and more its miraculous character until their antagonism, their disappointments, their mutual boredom kill whatever is left of the initial excitement. Yet in the beginning, they do not know all this. In fact, they take the intensity of the infatuation, this being crazy about each other, for proof of the intensity of their love, while it may only prove the degree of their preceding loneliness. This attitude that nothing is easier than to love has continued to be the prevalent idea about love in spite of the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. There is hardly any activity, any enterprise, which is started with such tremendous hopes and expectations, and yet which fails so regularly as love. If this were the case with any other activity, people would be eager to know the reasons for the failure and to learn how one could do better, or they would give up the activity. Since the latter is impossible in the case of love, there seems to be only one adequate way to overcome the failure of love, to examine the reasons for this failure and to proceed to study the meaning of love. The first step to take is to become aware that love is an art, just as living is an art. If we want to learn how to love, we must proceed in the same way we have to proceed if we want to learn any other art, say music, painting, carpentry, or the art of medicine or engineering. What are the necessary steps in learning any art? The process of learning an art can be divided conveniently into two parts. One, 
the mastery of the theory, the other, the mastery of the practice. If I want to learn the art of medicine, I must first know the facts about the human body and about various diseases. When I have all this theoretical knowledge, I am by no means competent in the art of medicine. I shall become a master in this art only after a great deal of practice, until eventually the results of my theoretical knowledge and the results of my practice are blended into one, my intuition, the essence of the mastery of any art. But aside from learning the theory and practice, there is a third factor necessary to becoming a master in any art. The mastery of the art must be a matter of ultimate concern. There must be nothing else in the world more important than the art. And maybe here lies the answer to the question of why people in our culture try so rarely to learn this art, in spite of their obvious failures. In spite of the deep-seated craving for love, almost everything else is considered to be more important than love. Success, prestige, money, power, almost all our energy is used for the learning of how to achieve these aims, and almost none to learn the art of loving. Could it be that only those things are considered worthy of being learned with which one can earn money or prestige, and that love, which only profits the soul, but is profitless in the modern sense, is a luxury we have no right to spend much energy on? However this may be, the following discussion will treat the art of loving in the sense of the foregoing divisions. First, I shall discuss the theory of love. Secondly, I shall discuss the practice of love. The Theory of Love Love, the Answer to the Problem of Human Existence Any theory of love must begin with a theory of man. While we find the equivalent of love in animals, their attachments are mainly a part of their instinctual equipment. Only remnants of this instinctual equipment can be seen operating in man. What is essential in the existence of man is the fact that he has emerged from the animal kingdom and that he has transcended nature, although he never leaves it. He is a part of it, and yet once torn away from nature, he cannot return to it. Once thrown out of paradise, a state of original oneness with nature, cherubims with flaming swords block his way if he should try to return. Man can only go forward by developing his reason, by finding a new harmony, a human one, instead of the pre-human harmony, which is irretrievably lost. When man is born, the human race, as well as the individual, he is thrown out of a situation which was definite, as definite as the instincts, into a situation which is indefinite, uncertain, and open. There is certainty only about the past and about the future only as far as that it is death. Man is gifted with reason. He is life being aware of itself. He has awareness of himself, of his fellow man, of his past, and of the possibilities of his future. This awareness of himself as a separate entity, 
the awareness of his own short lifespan, of the fact that without his will he is born, and against his will he dies, that he will die before those whom he loves, or that they before him, the awareness of his aloneness and separateness, of his helplessness before the forces of nature and of society, all this makes his separate, disunited existence an unbearable prison. He would become insane could he not liberate himself from this prison and reach out, unite himself in some form or other with men, with the world outside. Being separate means being cut off, without any capacity to use my human powers. Hence, to be separate means to be helpless, unable to grasp the world, things, and people actively. It means that the world can invade me without my ability to react. Thus, separateness is the source of intense anxiety. It arouses shame and the feeling of guilt. This experience is expressed in the biblical story of Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, after they have disobeyed, there is no good and evil unless there is freedom to disobey. After they have become human by having emancipated themselves from the original animal harmony with nature, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. The important point the story wants to convey to us is that after man and woman have become aware of themselves and of each other, they are aware of their separateness and of their difference inasmuch as they belong to different sexes. But while recognizing their separateness, they remain strangers because they have not yet learned to love each other, as is also made very clear by the fact that Adam defends himself by blaming Eve rather than by trying to defend her. The awareness of human separation without reunion by love is the source of shame. It is at the same time the source of guilt and anxiety. The deepest need of man, then, is the need to overcome his separateness, to leave the prison of his aloneness. The absolute failure to achieve this aim means insanity, because the panic of complete isolation can be overcome only by such a radical withdrawal from the world outside that the feeling of separation disappears because the world outside from which one is separated has disappeared. Man, of all ages and cultures, is confronted with the solution of one and the same question, the question of how to overcome separateness, how to achieve union, how to transcend one's own individual life and find at one moment. While there are many answers, the record of which is human history, they are nevertheless not innumerable. On the contrary, as soon as one ignores smaller differences which belong more to the periphery than to the center, one discovers that there is only a limited number of answers which have been given, and only could have been given by man in the various cultures in which he has lived. The history of religion and philosophy is the history of these answers, of their diversity, as well as of their limitation in number. The answers depend, to some extent, on the degree of individuation which an individual has reached. In the infant, Inus has developed but little yet. He still feels one with mother, has no feeling of separateness as long as mother is present. Its sense of aloneness is cured by the physical presence of the mother, her breasts, 
her skin. Only to the degree that the child develops his sense of separateness and individuality is the physical presence of the mother not sufficient anymore, and does the need to overcome separateness in other ways arise. Similarly, the human race, in its infancy, still feels one with nature. The soil, the animals, the plants are still man's world. He identifies himself with animals, and this is expressed by the wearing of animal masks, by the worshipping of a totem animal or animal gods. But the more the human race emerges from these primary bonds, the more it separates itself from the natural world, the more intense becomes the need to find new ways of escaping separateness. One way of achieving this aim lies in all kinds of orgiastic states. These may have the form of an auto-induced trance, sometimes with the help of drugs. Many rituals of primitive tribes offer a vivid picture of this type of solution. In a transitory state of exaltation, the world outside disappears, and with it the feeling of separateness from it. Inasmuch as these rituals are practiced in common, an experience of fusion with the group is added, which makes this solution all the more effective. Closely related to and often blended with this orgiastic solution is the sexual experience. The sexual orgasm can produce a state similar to the one produced by a trance or to the effects of certain drugs. Rites of communal sexual orgies were a part of many primitive rituals. It seems that after the orgiastic experience, man can go on for a time without suffering too much from his separateness. Slowly, the tension of anxiety mounts and then is reduced again by the repeated performance of the ritual. As long as these orgiastic states are a matter of common practice in a tribe, they do not produce anxiety or guilt. To act in this way is right and even virtuous because it is a way shared by all, approved and demanded by the medicine men or priests. Hence, there is no reason to feel guilty or ashamed. It is quite different when the same solution is chosen by an individual in a culture which has left behind these common practices. Alcoholism and drug addiction are the forms which the individual chooses in a non-orgiastic culture. In contrast to those participating in the socially patterned solution, such individuals suffer from guilt feelings and remorse. While they try to escape from separateness by taking refuge in alcohol or drugs, they feel all the more separate after the orgiastic experience is over and thus are driven to take recourse to it with increasing frequency and intensity. Slightly different from this is the recourse to a sexual orgiastic solution. To some extent, it is a natural and normal form of overcoming separateness and a partial answer to the problem of isolation. But in many individuals in whom separateness is not relieved in other ways, the search for the sexual orgasm assumes a function which makes it not very different from alcoholism and drug addiction. It becomes a desperate attempt to escape the anxiety engendered by separateness, since the sexual act without love never bridges the gap between two human beings except momentarily. All forms of orgiastic union have three characteristics. They are intense, even violent. They occur in the total personality, mind and body. 
They are transitory and periodical. Exactly the opposite holds true for that form of union which is by far the most frequent solution chosen by man in the past and in the present. The union based on conformity with the group, its customs, practices, and beliefs. Here again, we find a considerable development. In a primitive society, the group is small. It consists of those with whom one shares blood and soil. With the growing development of culture, the group enlarges. It becomes the citizenry of a polis, the citizenry of a large state, the members of a church. In contemporary Western society, the union with the group is the prevalent way of overcoming separateness. It is a union in which the individual self disappears to a large extent, and where the aim is to belong to the herd. If I am like everybody else, if I have no feelings or thoughts which make me different, if I conform in custom, dress, ideas to the pattern of the group, I am saved from the frightening experience of aloneness. The dictatorial systems use threats and terror to induce this conformity. The democratic countries, suggestions and propaganda. Most people are not even aware of their need to conform. They live under the illusion that they follow their own ideas and inclinations, that they are individualists, that they have arrived at their opinions as the result of their own thinking, and that it just happens that their ideas are the same as those of the majority. The consensus of all serves as a proof for the correctness of their ideas. Since there is still a need to feel some individuality, such need is satisfied with regard to minor differences the initials on the handbag or the sweater, the nameplate of the bank teller, the belonging to the Democratic as against Republican Party, to the Elks instead of to the Shriners become the expression of individual differences. The increasing tendency for the elimination of differences is closely related to the concept of equality as it is developing in the most advanced industrial societies. Equality had meant, in a religious context, that we are all God's children, that we all share in the same human divine substance, that we are all one. It meant also that the very differences between individuals must be respected, that while it is true that we are all one, it is also true that each one of us is a unique entity, is a cosmos by itself. Equality as a condition for the development of individuality was the meaning of the concept that no man must be the means for the ends of another man. That all men are equal inasmuch as they are ends, and only ends, and never means to each other. In contemporary capitalistic society, the meaning of equality has been transformed. By equality, one refers to the equality of automatons, of men who have lost their individuality. Equality today means sameness rather than oneness. It is the sameness of abstractions, of the men who work in the same jobs, who have the same amusements, who read the same newspapers, who have the same feelings and the same ideas. Union by conformity is not intense and violent. It is calm, dictated by routine, and for this very reason often is insufficient to pacify the anxiety of separateness. 
the incidence of alcoholism, drug addiction, compulsive sexualism, and suicide in contemporary Western society are symptoms of this relative failure of herd conformity. Herd conformity has only one advantage. It is permanent and not spasmodic. The individual is introduced into the conformity pattern at the age of three or four and subsequently never loses his contact with the herd. Even his funeral, which he anticipates as his last great social affair, is in strict conformance with the pattern. In addition to conformity as a way to relive the anxiety springing from separateness, another factor of contemporary life must be considered, the role of the work routine and of the pleasure routine. Man becomes a nine-to-fiver. He has little initiative. His tasks are prescribed by the organization of the work. There is even little difference between those high up on the ladder and those on the bottom. They all perform tasks prescribed by the whole structure of the organization at a prescribed speed and in a prescribed manner. Even the feelings are prescribed. Cheerfulness, tolerance, reliability, ambition, and an ability to get along with everybody without friction. Fun is routinized in similar, although not quite as drastic ways. Books are selected by the book clubs movies by the film and theater owners, and the advertising slogans paid for by them. The rest is also uniform. The Sunday ride in the car, the television session, the card game, the social parties. From birth to death, from Monday to Monday, from morning to evening, all activities are routinized and prefabricated. How should a man caught in this net of routine not forget that he is a man, a unique individual, one who is given only this one chance of living with hopes and disappointments, with sorrow and fear, with the longing for love and the dread of the nothing and of separateness. A third way of attaining union lies in creative activity, be it that of the artist or of the artisan. In any kind of creative work, the creating person unites himself with his material, which represents the world outside of himself. Whether the peasant grows his corn or the painter paints a picture, in all types of creative work, the worker and his object become one. Man unites himself with the world in the process of creation. This, however, holds true only for productive work, for work in which I plan, produce, see the result of my work. In the modern work process of the worker on the endless belt, little is left of this uniting quality of work. The worker has ceased to be he. Hence, no union takes place beyond that of conformity. The unity achieved in productive work is not interpersonal. The unity achieved in orgiastic fusion is transitory. The unity achieved by conformity is only pseudo-unity. Hence, they are only partial answers to the problem of existence. The full answer lies in the achievement of interpersonal union, of fusion with another person in love. This desire for interpersonal fusion is the most powerful striving in man. It is the most fundamental passion. It is the force which keeps the human race together, the clan, the family, society. The failure to achieve it means insanity or destruction, 
self-destruction or destruction of others. Without love, humanity could not exist for a day. Yet if we call the achievement of interpersonal union love, we find ourselves in serious difficulty. Fusion can be achieved in different ways, and the differences are not less significant than what is common to the various forms of love. Should they all be called love? As with all semantic difficulties, the answer can only be arbitrary. What matters is that we know what kind of union we are talking about when we speak of love. Do we refer to love as the mature answer to the problem of existence? Or do we speak of those immature forms of love which may be called symbiotic union? In the discussion that follows, I shall call love only the former. I shall begin the discussion of love with the latter. Symbiotic union has its biological pattern in the relationship between the pregnant mother and the fetus. They are two and yet one. They live together, symbiosis. They need each other. The fetus is a part of the mother. It receives everything it needs from her. Mother is its world, as it were. She feeds it. She protects it. But also, her own life is enhanced by it. In the psychic symbiotic union, the two bodies are independent, but the same kind of attachment exists psychologically. The passive form of the symbiotic union is that of submission, or, if we use a clinical term, of masochism. The masochistic person escapes from the unbearable feeling of isolation and separateness by making himself part and parcel of another person who directs him, guides him, protects him, who is his life and his oxygen, as it were. The power of the one to whom one submits is inflated. He is everything. I am nothing, except inasmuch as I am part of him. As a part, I am part of greatness, of power, of certainty. The masochistic person does not have to make decisions, does not have to take any risks. He is never alone, but he is not independent. He has no integrity. He is not yet fully born. In a religious context, the object of worship is called an idol. In a secular context of a masochistic love relationship, the essential mechanism, that of idolatry, is the same. The masochistic relationship can be blended with physical, sexual desire. In this case, it is not only a submission in which one's mind participates, but also one's whole body. There can be masochistic submission to fate, to sickness, to rhythmic music, to the orgiastic state produced by drugs or under hypnotic trance. In all these instances, the person renounces his integrity, makes himself the instrument of somebody or something outside of himself. He need not solve the problem of living by productive activity. The active form of symbiotic fusion is domination, or, to use the psychological term corresponding to masochism, sadism. The sadistic person wants to escape from his aloneness and his sense of imprisonment by making another person part and parcel of himself. He inflates and enhances himself by incorporating another person who worships him. The sadistic person is as dependent on the submissive person as the latter is on the former. Neither can live without the other. 
The difference is only that the sadistic person commands, exploits, hurts, humiliates, and that the masochistic person is commanded, exploited, hurt, humiliated. This is a considerable difference in a realistic sense. In a deeper emotional sense, the difference is not so great as that which they both have in common, fusion without integrity. If one understands this, it is also not surprising to find that usually a person reacts in both the sadistic and the masochistic manner, usually toward different objects. Hitler reacted primarily in a sadistic fashion toward people, but masochistically toward fate, history, the higher power of nature. His end, suicide among general destruction, is as characteristic as was his dream of success, total domination. In contrast to symbiotic union, mature love is union under the condition of preserving one's integrity, one's individuality. Love is an active power in man, a power which breaks through the walls which separate man from his fellow men, which unites him with others. Love makes him overcome the sense of isolation and separateness, yet it permits him to be himself to retain his integrity. In love, the paradox occurs that two beings become one and yet remain two. If we say love is an activity, we face a difficulty which lies in the ambiguous meaning of the word activity. A man sitting quiet and contemplating with no purpose or aim except that of experiencing himself and his oneness with the world is considered to be passive because he is not doing anything. In reality, this attitude of concentrated meditation is the highest activity there is, an activity of the soul which is possible only under the condition of inner freedom and independence. Love is an activity, not a passive effect. It is a standing in, not a falling for. In the most general way, the active character of love can be described by stating that love is primarily giving, not receiving. What is giving? Simple as the answer to this question seems to be, it is actually full of ambiguities and complexities. The most widespread misunderstanding is that which assumes that giving is giving up something, sacrificing. The person whose character has not developed beyond the stage of the exploitative or hoarding orientation experiences the act of giving in this way. The marketing character is willing to give, but only in exchange for receiving. Giving without receiving for him is being cheated. People whose main orientation is a non-productive one feel giving as an impoverishment. Most individuals of this type, therefore, refuse to give. Some make a virtue out of giving in the sense of a sacrifice. They feel that just because it is painful to give, one should give. The virtue of giving to them lies in the very act of acceptance of the sacrifice. For them, the norm that it is better to give than to receive means that it is better to suffer deprivation than to experience joy. For the productive character, giving has an entirely different meaning. Giving is the highest expression of potency. In the very act of giving, I experience my strength, my wealth, my power. 
This experience fills me with joy. Giving is more joyous than receiving, not because it is a deprivation, but because in the act of giving lies the expression of my aliveness. In the sphere of material things, giving means being rich. Not he who has much is rich, but he who gives much. The hoarder, who is anxiously worried about losing something, is, psychologically speaking, the poor, impoverished man, regardless of how much he has. Whoever is capable of giving of himself is rich. Only one who is deprived of all that goes beyond the barest necessities for subsistence would be incapable of enjoying the act of giving material things. But daily experience shows that what a person considers the minimal necessities depends as much on his character as it depends on his actual possessions. It is well known that the poor are more willing to give than the rich. Nevertheless, poverty beyond a certain point may make it impossible to give and is so degrading not only because of the suffering it causes directly, but because of the fact that it deprives the poor of the joy of giving. The most important sphere of giving, however, is not that of material things, but lies in the specifically human realm. What does one person give to another? He gives of himself, of the most precious he has. He gives of his life. This does not necessarily mean that he sacrifices his life for the other, but that he gives him of that which is alive in him. He gives him of his joy, of his interest, of his understanding, of his knowledge, of his humor, of his sadness, of all expressions and manifestations of that which is alive in him. In thus giving of his life, he enriches the other person. He enhances the other's sense of aliveness by enhancing his own sense of aliveness. He does not give in order to receive. Giving is, in itself, exquisite joy. But in giving, he cannot help bringing something to life in the other person, and this which is brought to life reflects back to him. In truly giving, he cannot help receiving that which is given back to him. In the act of giving, something is born, and both persons involved are grateful for the life that is born for both of them. Specifically with regard to love, this means love is a power which produces love. Impotence is the inability to produce love. But not only in love does giving mean receiving. The teacher is taught by his students. The actor is stimulated by his audience. The psychoanalyst is cured by his patient, provided they do not treat each other as objects, but are related to each other genuinely and productively. It is hardly necessary to stress the fact that the ability to love as an act of giving depends on the character development of the person. It presupposes the attainment of a predominantly productive orientation. In this orientation, the person has overcome dependency, narcissistic omnipotence, the wish to exploit others or to hoard, and has acquired faith in his own human powers, courage to rely on his powers in the attainment of his goals, to the degree that these qualities are lacking, he is afraid of giving himself, hence of loving. Beyond the element of giving, 
The active character of love becomes evident in the fact that it always implies certain basic elements common to all forms of love. These are care, responsibility, respect, and knowledge. That love implies care is most evident in a mother's love for her child. No assurance of her love would strike us as sincere if we saw her lacking in care for the infant, if she neglected to feed it, to bathe it, to give it physical comfort. And we are impressed by her love if we see her caring for the child. It is not different even with the love for animals or flowers. If a woman told us that she loved flowers and we saw that she forgot to water them, we would not believe in her love for flowers. Love is the active concern for the life and the growth of that which we love. Where this active concern is lacking, there is no love. Care and concern imply another aspect of love, that of responsibility. Today, responsibility is often meant to denote duty, something imposed upon one from the outside. But responsibility in its true sense is an entirely voluntary act. It is my response to the needs, expressed or unexpressed, of another human being. To be responsible means to be able and ready to respond. The loving person feels responsible for his fellow men, as he feels responsible for himself. This responsibility, in the case of the mother and her infant, refers mainly to the care for physical needs. In the love between adults, it refers mainly to the psychic needs of the other person. Responsibility could easily deteriorate into domination and possessiveness were it not for a third component of love, respect. Respect is not fear and awe. It denotes the ability to see a person as he is, to be aware of his unique individuality. Respect means the concern that the other person should grow and unfold as he is. To respect a person is not possible without knowing him. Care and responsibility would be blind if they were not guided by knowledge. Knowledge would be empty if it were not motivated by concern. The knowledge which is an aspect of love is possible only when I can transcend the concern for myself and see the other person in his own terms. Knowledge has one more and a more fundamental relation to the problem of love. The basic need to fuse with another person so as to transcend the prison of one's separateness is closely related to another specifically human desire, that to know the secret of man. While life in its merely biological aspects is a miracle and a secret, man in his human aspects is an unfathomable secret to himself and to his fellow man. We know ourselves, and yet even with all the efforts we may make, we do not know ourselves. We know our fellow man, and yet we do not know him, because we are not a thing, and our fellow man is not a thing. The further we reach into the depth of our being, or someone else's being, the more the goal of knowledge eludes us. Yet we cannot help desiring to penetrate into the secret of man's soul, into the innermost nucleus, which is he. There is one way, a desperate one, to know the secret. It is that of complete power over another person. The power which makes him do what we want, 
feel what we want, think what we want, which transforms him into a thing, our thing, our possession. The ultimate degree of this attempt to know lies in the extremes of sadism, the desire and ability to make a human being suffer, to torture him, to force him to betray his secret in his suffering. In this craving for penetrating man's secret, his and hence our own, lies an essential motivation for the depth and intensity of cruelty and destructiveness. In children, we often see this path to knowledge quite overtly. The child takes something apart, breaks it up in order to know it, or it takes an animal apart, cruelly tears off the wings of a butterfly in order to know it, to force its secret. The cruelty itself is motivated by something deeper, the wish to know the secret of things and of life. The other path to knowing the secret is love. Love is active penetration of the other person in which my desire to know is stilled by union. In the act of fusion, I know you, I know myself, I know everybody, and I know nothing. I know in the only way knowledge of that which is alive is possible for man, by experience of union, not by any knowledge our thought can give. Sadism is motivated by the wish to know the secret, yet I remain as ignorant as I was before. I have torn the other being apart, limb from limb, yet all I have done is to destroy him. Love is the only way of knowledge which in the act of union answers my quest. In the act of loving, of giving myself, in the act of penetrating the other person, I find myself. I discover myself. I discover us both. I discover man. The longing to know ourselves and to know our fellow man has been expressed in the Delphic motto, Know Thyself. It is the mainspring of all psychology. But inasmuch as the desire is to know all of man, his innermost secret, the desire can never be fulfilled in knowledge of the ordinary kind, in knowledge only by thought. Even if we knew a thousand times more of ourselves, we would never reach bottom. We would still remain an enigma to ourselves, as our fellow man would remain an enigma to us. The only way of full knowledge lies in the act of love. This act transcends thought. It transcends words. It is the daring plunge into the experience of union. However, knowledge in thought, that is, psychological knowledge, is a necessary condition for full knowledge in the act of love. I have to know the other person and myself objectively in order to be able to see his reality, or rather, to overcome the illusions, the irrationally distorted picture I have of him. Only if I know a human being objectively can I know him in his ultimate essence, in the act of love. The problem of knowing man is parallel to the religious problem of knowing God. In conventional Western theology, the attempt is made to know God by thought, to make statements about God. It is assumed that I can know God in my thought. In mysticism, the attempt is given up to know God by thought, and it is replaced by the experience of union with God, in which there is no more room and no need for knowledge about God. 
The experience of union with man, or religiously speaking, with God, is by no means irrational. On the contrary, it is, as Albert Schweitzer has pointed out, the most daring and radical consequence of rationalism. It is based on our knowledge of the fundamental limitations of our knowledge. It is the knowledge that we shall never grasp the secret of man and of the universe, but that we can know, nevertheless, in the act of love. Psychology as a science has its limitations, and as the logical consequences of theology is mysticism, so the ultimate consequence of psychology is love. Care, responsibility, respect, and knowledge are mutually interdependent. They are a syndrome of attitudes which are to be found in the mature person, that is, in the person who develops his own powers productively, who only wants to have that which he has worked for, who has given up narcissistic dreams of omniscience and omnipotence, who has acquired humility based on the inner strength which only genuine productive activity can give. Thus far, I have spoken of love as the overcoming of human separateness, as the fulfillment of the longing for union. But above the universal existential need for union rises a more specific biological one, the desire for union between the masculine and feminine poles. The idea of this polarization is most strikingly expressed in the myth that originally man and woman were one, that they were cut in half, and from then on each male has been seeking for the lost female part of himself in order to unite again with her. The meaning of the myth is clear enough. Sexual polarization leads man to seek union in a specific way, that of union with the other sex. The polarity between the male and female principles exists also within each man and each woman. Just as physiologically man and woman each have hormones of the opposite sex, they are bisexual also in the psychological sense. They carry in themselves the principle of receiving and of penetrating, of matter and of spirit. Man and woman finds union within himself only in the union of his female and his male polarity. This polarity is the basis for all creativity. The same polarity of the male and female principle exists in nature, not only as is obvious in animals and plants, but in the polarity of the two fundamental functions, that of receiving and that of penetrating. It is the polarity of the earth and rain, of the river and the ocean, of night and day, of darkness and light, of matter and spirit. The problem of the male-female polarity leads to some further discussion on the subject matter of love and sex. Freud made the error of seeing in love exclusively the expression, or a sublimation, of the sexual instinct, rather than recognizing that the sexual desire is one manifestation of the need for love and union. But Freud's error goes deeper. In line with his physiological materialism, he sees in the sexual instinct the result of a chemically produced tension in the body which is painful and seeks for relief. The aim of the sexual desire is the removal of this painful tension. Sexual satisfaction lies in the accomplishment of this removal. This view has its validity to the extent that the sexual desire operates in the same fashion as hunger or thirst do when the organism is undernourished. Sexual desire in this concept 
is an itch. Sexual satisfaction, the removal of the itch. In fact, as far as this concept of sexuality is concerned, masturbation would be the ideal sexual satisfaction. What Freud, paradoxically enough, ignores is the psychobiological aspect of sexuality, the masculine-feminine polarity, and the desire to bridge this polarity by union. This curious error was probably facilitated by Freud's extreme patriarchalism, which led him to the assumption that sexuality per se is masculine, that the libido has regularly a masculine nature, regardless of whether it is the libido in a man or in a woman. Sexual attraction between the sexes is only partly motivated by the need for removal of tension. It is mainly the need for union with the other sexual pole. In fact, erotic attraction is by no means only expressed in sexual attraction. There is masculinity and femininity in character as well as in sexual function. The masculine character can be defined as having the qualities of penetration, guidance, activity, discipline, and adventurousness. The feminine character by the qualities of productive receptiveness, protection, realism, endurance, motherliness. It must always be kept in mind that in each individual both characteristics are blended, but with the preponderance of those appertaining to his or her sex. Very often, if the masculine character traits of a man are weakened, because emotionally he has remained a child, he will try to compensate for this lack by the exclusive emphasis on his male role in sex. The result is the Don Juan, who needs to prove his male prowess in sex because he is unsure of his masculinity in a characterological sense. When the paralysis of masculinity is more extreme, sadism becomes the perverted substitute for masculinity. If the feminine sexuality is weakened or perverted, it is transformed into masochism or possessiveness. Freud has been criticized for his over-evaluation of sex. This criticism was often prompted by the wish to remove an element from Freud's system which aroused criticism and hostility among conventionally minded people. Indeed, in his time, Freud's theory had a challenging and revolutionary character. But what was true around 1900 is not true anymore, almost 90 years later. The sexual mores have changed so much that Freud's theories are not any longer shocking to the Western middle classes. My criticism of Freud's theory is not that he overemphasized sex, but his failure to understand sex deeply enough. He took the first step in discovering the significance of interpersonal passions. In accordance with his philosophic premises, he explained them physiologically. In the further development of psychoanalysis, it is necessary to correct and deepen Freud's concept by translating Freud's insights from the physiological into the biological and existential dimension. Love between parent and child. The infant, at the moment of birth, 
would feel the fear of dying if a gracious fate did not preserve it from any awareness of the anxiety involved in the separation from the mother and from intrauterine existence. Even after being born, the infant is hardly different from what it was before birth. It cannot recognize objects. It is not yet aware of itself and of the world as being outside of itself. It only feels the positive stimulation of warmth and food, and it does not yet differentiate warmth and food from its source, mother. Mother is warmth. Mother is food. Mother is the euphoric state of satisfaction and security. Mother's love is bliss, is peace. It need not be acquired. It need not be deserved. But there is a negative side, too, to the unconditional quality of mother's love. Not only does it not need to be deserved, it also cannot be acquired, produced, controlled. If it is there, it is like a blessing. If it is not there, it is as if all beauty had gone out of life and there is nothing I can do to create it. Closely related to the development of the capacity of love is the development of the object of love. The first months and years of the child are those where his closest attachment is to the mother. But daily he becomes more independent. He learns to walk, to talk, to explore the world on his own. The relationship to mother loses some of its vital significance, and instead the relationship to father becomes more and more important. In order to understand this shift from mother to father, we must consider the essential differences in quality between motherly and fatherly love. Motherly love, by its very nature, is unconditional. Mother loves the newborn infant because it is her child, not because the child has fulfilled any specific condition or lived up to any specific expectation. No wonder that we all cling to the longing for motherly love as children and also as adults. Most children are lucky enough to receive motherly love. As adults, the same longing is much more difficult to fulfill. In the most satisfactory development, it remains a component of normal erotic love. Often it finds expression in religious forms, more often in neurotic forms. The relationship to father is quite different. Mother is the home we come from. She is nature, soil, the ocean. Father does not represent any such natural home. He has little connection with the child in the first years of its life and his importance for the child in this early period cannot be compared with that of mother. But while father does not represent the natural world, he represents the other pole of human existence, the world of thought, of man-made things, of law and order, of discipline, of travel and adventure. Father is the one who teaches the child, who shows him the road into the world. Closely related to this function is one which is connected with socio-economic development. When private property came into existence, and when private property could be inherited by one of the sons, father began to look for that son to whom he could leave his property. Naturally, that was the one whom father thought best fitted to become his successor, the son who was most like him, and consequently, whom he liked the most. Fatherly love is conditional love. Its principle is, I love you because you fulfill my expectations, because you do your duty, 
because you are like me. In conditional fatherly love, we find, as with unconditional motherly love, a negative and a positive aspect. The negative aspect is the very fact that fatherly love has to be deserved, that it can be lost if one does not do what is expected. In the nature of fatherly love lies the fact that obedience becomes the main virtue, that disobedience is the main sin, and its punishment the withdrawal of fatherly love. The positive side is equally important. Since his love is conditioned, I can do something to acquire it. I can work for it. His love is not outside my control, as motherly love is. The mother's and the father's attitudes toward the child correspond to the child's own needs. The infant needs mother's unconditional love and care physiologically as well as psychically. The child, after six, begins to need father's love, his authority, and guidance. Mother has the function of making him secure in life. Father has the function of teaching him, guiding him to cope with those problems with which the particular society the child has been born into confronts him. In the ideal case, mother's love does not try to prevent the child from growing up, does not try to put a premium on helplessness. Mother should have faith in life, hence not be over-anxious, and thus not infect the child with her anxiety. Part of her life should be the wish that the child become independent and eventually separate from her. Father's love should be guided by principles and expectations. It should be patient and tolerant rather than threatening and authoritarian. It should give the growing child an increasing sense of competence and eventually permit him to become his own authority and to dispense with that of father. Eventually, the mature person has come to the point where he is his own mother and his own father. If he would only retain his fatherly conscience, he would become harsh and inhuman. If he would only retain his motherly conscience, he would be apt to lose judgment and to hinder himself and others in their development. In this development from mother-centered to father-centered attachment and their eventual synthesis lies the basis for mental health and the achievement of maturity. In the failure of this development lies the basic cause for neurosis. One cause for neurotic development can lie in the fact that a boy has a loving but overindulgent or domineering mother and a weak and uninterested father. In this case, he may remain fixed at an early mother attachment and develop into a person who is dependent on mother, feels helpless, has the strivings characteristic of the receptive person, that is, to receive, to be protected, to be taken care of, and who has the lack of fatherly qualities, discipline, independence, and ability to master life by himself. He may try to find mothers in everybody, sometimes in women and sometimes in men in a position of authority and power. If, on the other hand, the mother is cold, unresponsive and domineering, he may either transfer the need for motherly protection to his father and subsequent father figure, in which case the end result is similar to the former case, or he will develop into a one-sidedly father-oriented person, completely given to the principles of law, order, and authority, and lacking in the ability to expect or to receive unconditional love. 
This development is further intensified if the father is authoritarian and at the same time strongly attached to the son. What is characteristic of all these neurotic developments is the fact that one principle, the fatherly or the motherly, fails to develop or, and this is the case in the more severe neurotic development, that the roles of mother and father become confused both with regard to persons outside and with regard to these roles within the person. Further examination may show that certain types of neurosis, like obsessional neurosis, develop more on the basis of a one-sided father attachment, while others, like hysteria, alcoholism, inability to assert oneself and to cope with life realistically, and depressions, result from mother-centeredness. Objects of love. Love is not primarily a relationship to a specific person. It is an attitude, an orientation of character which determines the relatedness of a person to the world as a whole, not toward one object of love. If a person loves only one other person and is indifferent to the rest of his fellow men, his love is not love, but a symbiotic attachment or an enlarged egotism. Yet most people believe that love is constituted by the object, not by the faculty. In fact, they even believe that it is a proof of the intensity of their love when they do not love anybody else except the loved person. This is the same fallacy which we have already mentioned above. Because one does not see that love is an activity, a power of the soul, one believes that all that is necessary to find is the right object and that everything goes by itself afterward. This attitude can be compared to that of a man who wants to paint, but who, instead of learning the art, claims that he is just to wait for the right object, and that he will paint beautifully when he finds it. If I truly love one person, I love all persons. I love the world. I love life. If I can say to somebody else, I love you, I must be able to say, I love in you everybody. I love through you the world. I love in you also myself. Saying that love is an orientation which refers to all and not to one does not imply, however, the idea that there are no differences between various types of love which depend on the kind of object which is loved. Brotherly love. The most fundamental kind of love which underlies all types of love is brotherly love. By this, I mean the sense of responsibility, care, respect, knowledge of any other human being, the wish to further his life. This is the kind of love the Bible speaks of when it says, Love thy neighbor as thyself. Brotherly love is love for all human beings. It is characterized by its very lack of exclusiveness. If I have developed the capacity for love, then I cannot help loving my brothers. In brotherly love, there is the experience of union with all men, of human solidarity, 
of human at one moment. Brotherly love is based on the experience that we all are one. The differences in talents, intelligence, knowledge are negligible in comparison with the identity of the human core common to all men. In order to experience this identity, it is necessary to penetrate from the periphery to the core. If I perceive in another person mainly the surface, I perceive mainly the differences, that which separate us. If I penetrate to the core, I perceive our identity, the fact of our brotherhood. This relatedness from center to center, instead of that from periphery to periphery, is central relatedness. Brotherly love is love between equals, but indeed, even as equals, we are not always equal. Inasmuch as we are human, we are all in need of help. Today I, tomorrow you. Love of the helpless one, love of the poor and the stranger, are the beginning of brotherly love. To love one's flesh and blood is no achievement. The animal loves its young and cares for them. The helpless one loves his master, since his life depends on him. The child loves his parents, since he needs them. Only in the love of those who do not serve a purpose, love begins to unfold. Motherly love. We have already dealt with the nature of motherly love, but one important addition must be made here. Affirmation of the child's life has two aspects. One is the care and responsibility absolutely necessary for the preservation of the child's life and his growth. The other aspect goes further than mere preservation. It is the attitude which instills in the child a love for living, which gives him the feeling it is good to be alive. It is good to be a little boy or girl. It is good to be on this earth. In biblical symbolism, the promised land, land is always a mother symbol, is described as flowing with milk and honey. Milk is the symbol of the first aspect of love, that of care and affirmation. Honey symbolizes the sweetness of life, the love for it and the happiness in being alive. Most mothers are capable of giving milk, but only a minority of giving honey, too. In order to be able to give honey, a mother must not only be a good mother, but a happy person, and this aim is not achieved by many. The effect on the child can hardly be exaggerated. Mother's love for life is as infectious as her anxiety is. Both attitudes have a deep effect on the child's whole personality. One can distinguish indeed among children and adults those who got only milk and those who got milk and honey. In contrast to brotherly love and erotic love, which are love between equals, the relationship of mother and child is by its very nature one of inequality, where one needs all the help and the other gives it. It is for this altruistic, unselfish character that motherly love has been considered the highest kind of love and the most sacred of all emotional bonds. It seems, however, that the real achievement of motherly love lies not in the mother's love for the small infant, but in her love for the growing child. It must emerge from the mother's womb, from the mother's breast. It must eventually become a completely separate human being.
The very essence of motherly love is to care for the child's growth, and that means to want the child's separation from herself. Here lies the basic difference to erotic love. In erotic love, two people who were separate become one. In motherly love, two people who were one become separate. The mother must not only tolerate, she must wish and support the child's separation. It is only at this stage that motherly love becomes such a difficult task, that it requires unselfishness, the ability to give everything and to want nothing but the happiness of the loved one. It is also at this stage that many mothers fail in their task of motherly love. The narcissistic, the domineering, the possessive woman can succeed in being a loving mother as long as the child is small. Only the really loving woman, the woman who is happier in giving than in taking, who is firmly rooted in her own existence, can be a loving mother when the child is in the process of separation. Motherly love for the growing child, love which wants nothing for oneself, is perhaps the most difficult form of love to be achieved, and all the more deceptive because of the ease with which a mother can love her small infant. But just because of this difficulty, a woman can be a truly loving mother only if she can love. If she is able to love her husband, other children, strangers, all human beings... The woman who is not capable of love, in this sense, can be an affectionate mother as long as the child is small. But she cannot be a loving mother, the test of which is the willingness to bear separation, and even after the separation, to go on loving. Erotic love. Brotherly love is love among equals. Motherly love is love for the helpless. Different as they are from each other, they have in common that they are by their very nature not restricted to one person. If I love my brother, I love all my brothers. If I love my child, I love all my children. No, beyond that, I love all children, all that are in need of my help. In contrast to both types of love is erotic love. It is the craving for complete fusion, for union with one other person. It is by its very nature exclusive and not universal. It is also perhaps the most deceptive form of love there is. First of all, it is often confused with the explosive experience of falling in love, the sudden collapse of the barriers which existed until that moment between two strangers. But as was pointed out before, this experience of sudden intimacy is by its very nature short-lived. After the stranger has become an intimately known person, there are no more barriers to be overcome, no more sudden closeness to be achieved. The loved person becomes as well-known as oneself, or perhaps I should better say, as little-known. For most people, their own person, as well as others, is soon explored and soon exhausted. For them, intimacy is established primarily through sexual contact. Since they experience the separateness of the other person primarily as physical separateness, physical union means overcoming separateness. Beyond that, 
There are other factors which to many people denote the overcoming of separateness. To speak of one's own personal life, one's hope and anxieties, to show oneself with one's childlike or childish aspects, to establish a common interest vis-à-vis -vis the world, all this is taken as overcoming separateness. Even to show one's anger, one's hate, one's complete lack of inhibition is taken for intimacy. And this may explain the perverted attraction married couples often have for each other, who seem intimate only when they are in bed or when they give vent to their mutual hate and rage. But all these types of closeness tend to become reduced more and more as time goes on. The consequence is one seeks love with a new person, with a new stranger. Again, the stranger is transformed into an intimate person. Again, the experience of falling in love is exhilarating and intense. And again, it slowly becomes less and less intense and ends in the wish for a new conquest, a new love, always with the illusion that the new love will be different from the earlier ones. These illusions are greatly helped by the deceptive character of sexual desire. Sexual desire aims at fusion and is by no means only a physical appetite, the relief of a painful tension. But sexual desire can be stimulated by the anxiety of aloneness, by the wish to conquer or be conquered, by vanity, by the wish to hurt and even to destroy as much as it can be stimulated by love. It seems that sexual desire can easily blend with and be stimulated by any strong emotion of which love is only one. Because sexual desire is in the minds of most people coupled with the idea of love, they are easily misled to conclude that they love each other when they want each other physically. Love can inspire the wish for sexual union. In this case, the physical relationship is lacking in greediness, in a wish to conquer or to be conquered, but is blended with tenderness. If the desire for physical union is not stimulated by love, if erotic love is not also brotherly love, it never leads to union in more than an orgiastic, transitory sense. Sexual attraction creates, for the moment, the illusion of union. Yet without love, this union leaves strangers as far apart as they were before. Sometimes it makes them ashamed of each other, or even makes them hate each other, because when the illusion is gone, they feel their estrangement even more markedly than before. Tenderness is by no means, as Freud believed, a sublimation of the sexual instinct. It is the direct outcome of brotherly love and exists in physical as well as in non-physical forms of love. In erotic love, there is an exclusiveness which is lacking in brotherly love and motherly love. Frequently, the exclusiveness of erotic love is misinterpreted as meaning possessive attachment. One can often find two people in love with each other who feel no love for anybody else. They are two people who identify themselves with each other, who solve the problem of separateness by enlarging the single individual into two. They have the experience of overcoming aloneness, yet, since they are separated from the rest of mankind, they remain separated from each other and alienated from themselves. Their experience of union is an illusion. Erotic love is exclusive, but it loves in the other person all of mankind, all that is alive.
It is exclusive only in the sense that I can fuse myself fully and intensely with one person only. Erotic love excludes the love for others only in the sense of erotic fusion. Full commitment in all aspects of life, but not in the sense of deep brotherly love. Erotic love, if it is love, has one premise, that I love from the essence of my being and experience the other person in the essence of his or her being. In essence, all human beings are identical. We are all part of one. We are one. This being so, it should not make any difference whom we love. Love should be essentially an act of will, of decision to commit my life completely to that of one other person. This is, indeed, the rationale behind the idea of the insolubility of marriage, as it is behind the many forms of traditional marriage in which the two partners never choose each other, but are chosen for each other, and yet are expected to love each other. In contemporary Western culture, this idea appears altogether false. Love is supposed to be the outcome of a spontaneous emotional reaction, of suddenly being gripped by an irresistible feeling. In this view, one sees only the peculiarities of the two individuals involved, and not the fact that all men are part of Adam and all women part of Eve. One neglects to see an important factor in erotic love, that of will. To love somebody is not just a strong feeling. It is a decision. It is a judgment. It is a promise. If love were only a feeling, there would be no basis for the promise to love each other forever. A feeling comes and it may go. How can I judge that it will stay forever when my act does not involve judgment and decision? Taking these views into account, one may arrive at the position that love is exclusively an act of will and commitment, and that therefore, fundamentally, it does not matter who the two persons are. Whether the marriage was arranged by others or the result of individual choice, once the marriage is concluded, the act of will should guarantee the continuation of love. This view seems to neglect the paradoxical character of human nature and of erotic love. We are all one, yet every one of us is a unique, unduplicable entity. In our relationships to others, the same paradox is repeated. Inasmuch as we are all one, we can love everybody in the same way in the sense of brotherly love. But inasmuch as we are all also different, erotic love requires certain specific, highly individual elements which exist between some people, but not between all. Both views, then, that of erotic love as completely individual attraction, unique between two specific persons, as well as the other view that erotic love is nothing but an act of will, are true. Or, as it may be put more aptly, the truth is neither this nor that. Hence the idea of a relationship which can be easily dissolved if one is not successful with it is as erroneous as the idea that under no circumstances must the relationship be dissolved. Self-love While it raises no objection to apply the concept of love to various objects, 
It is a widespread belief that while it is virtuous to love others, it is sinful to love oneself. It is assumed that to the degree to which I love myself, I do not love others, that self-love is the same as selfishness. Freud speaks of self-love in psychiatric terms, but nevertheless, his value judgment is self-love is the same as narcissism, the turning of the libido toward oneself. Narcissism is the earliest stage in human development, and the person who in later life has returned to this narcissistic stage is incapable of love. In the extreme case, he is insane. Freud assumes that love is the manifestation of libido, and that the libido is either turned toward others, love, or toward oneself, self-love. Love and self-love are thus mutually exclusive in the sense that the more there is of one, the less there is of the other. If self-love is bad, it follows that unselfishness is virtuous. These questions arise. Does psychological observation support the thesis that there is a basic contradiction between love for oneself and love for others? Is love for oneself the same phenomenon as selfishness, or are they opposites? Furthermore, is the selfishness of modern man really a concern for himself as an individual with all his intellectual, emotional, and sensual potentialities? Has he not become an appendage of his socio-economic role? Is his selfishness identical with self-love, or is it not caused by the very lack of it? The logical fallacy in the notion that love for others and love for oneself are mutually exclusive should be stressed. If it is a virtue to love my neighbor as a human being, it must be a virtue and not a vice to love myself, since I am a human being too. The love for my own self is inseparably connected with a love for any other human being. We have come now to the basic psychological premises on which the conclusions of our argument are built. Generally, these premises are as follows. The attitudes toward others and toward ourselves, far from being contradictory, are basically conjunctive. With regard to the problem under discussion, this means love of others and love of ourselves are not alternatives. To love somebody is the actualization and concentration of the power to love. The basic affirmation contained in love is directed toward the beloved person as an incarnation of essentially human qualities. Love of one person implies love of man as such. From this, it follows that my own self must be as much an object of my love as another person. The affirmation of one's own life, happiness, growth, freedom, is rooted in one's capacity to love, i.e., in care, respect, responsibility, and knowledge. If an individual is able to love productively, he loves himself too. If he can love only others, he cannot love at all. Granted that love for oneself and for others in principle is conjunctive, how do we explain selfishness, which obviously excludes any genuine concern for others? The selfish person is interested only in himself, wants everything for himself, feels no pleasure in giving, but only in taking. The world outside is looked at only from the standpoint of what he can get out of it. 
He lacks interest in the needs of others and respect for their dignity and integrity. He can see nothing but himself. He judges everyone and everything from its usefulness to him. He is basically unable to love. Does this not prove that concern for others and concern for oneself are unavoidable alternatives? This would be so if selfishness and self-love were identical. But that assumption is the very fallacy which has led to so many mistaken conclusions concerning our problem. Selfishness and self-love, far from being identical, are actually opposites. The selfish person does not love himself too much, but too little. In fact, he hates himself. This lack of fondness and care for himself, which is only one expression of his lack of productiveness, leaves him empty and frustrated. He is necessarily unhappy and anxiously concerned to snatch from life the satisfaction which he blocks himself from attaining. He seems to care too much for himself, but actually he only makes an unsuccessful attempt to cover up and compensate for his failure to care for his real self. Freud holds that the selfish person is narcissistic, as if he had withdrawn his love from others and turned it toward his own person. It is true that selfish persons are incapable of loving others, but they are not capable of loving themselves either. This is borne out by psychoanalytic experience with neurotic unselfishness, a symptom of neurosis observed in not a few people who usually are troubled not by this symptom, but by others connected with it, like depression, tiredness, inability to work, failure in love relationships, and so on. Not only is unselfishness not felt as a symptom, it is often the one redeeming character trait on which such people pride themselves. The unselfish person does not want anything for himself. He lives only for others, is proud that he does not consider himself important. He is puzzled to find that in spite of his unselfishness, he is unhappy, and that his relationships to those closest to him are unsatisfactory. This person can be cured only if his unselfishness, too, is interpreted as a symptom along with the others, so that his lack of productiveness, which is at the root of both his unselfishness and his other troubles, can be corrected. The nature of unselfishness becomes particularly apparent in its effect on others, and most frequently in our culture in the effect the unselfish mother has on her children. She believes that by her unselfishness, her children will experience what it means to be loved and to learn, in turn, what it means to love. The effect of her unselfishness, however, does not at all correspond to her expectations. The children do not show the happiness of persons who are convinced that they are loved. They are anxious, tense, afraid of mother's disapproval, and anxious to live up to her expectations. Usually, they are affected by their mother's hidden hostility toward life, which they sense rather than recognize clearly, and eventually, they become imbued with it themselves. Altogether, the effect of the unselfish mother is not too different from that of the selfish one. Indeed, it is often worse, because the mother's unselfishness prevents the children from criticizing her. They are put under the obligation not to disappoint her, they are taught under the mask of virtue, dislike for life. If one has a chance to study the effect 
of a mother with genuine self-love, one can see that there is nothing more conducive to giving a child the experience of what love, joy, and happiness are than being loved by a mother who loves herself. These ideas on self-love cannot be summarized better than by quoting Meister Eckhart on this topic. If you love yourself, you love everybody else as you do yourself. As long as you love another person less than you love yourself, you will not really succeed in loving yourself. But if you love all alike, including yourself, you will love them as one person, and that person is both God and man. Thus, he is a great and righteous person who, loving himself, loves all others equally.